This morning's scripture is from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Before we pray, I just want to encourage you. I'm very excited about the Pray For Me campaign. Very excited that Chris Gregory, our new children's ministry director, has brought this here, that Kim and Monica have gotten excited about it, that Tim and Matt have gotten excited about it. The guy who started this is a man by the name of Tony Souter. I worked with him years ago in Atlanta. He was a youth director. I was an assistant under him. I take credit for this because I was such a mess. He learned that early you had to pray for the young people. You know, uh, I think that this thing has a lot of power in it. You know, supplication, prayer, is one of the hallmarks of Stonebridge. It's, one, it's the first of our six stones that we talk about. And what we say about it is everything that happens here is dependent on the power of prayer. Everything that happens. Otherwise, we're just another club. You know, we need to pray for the unleashing of God's power in this place, and what an opportunity we have to pray for this next generation of young people. So Chris and Matt and Tim and everyone involved, thank you. Uh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer now, asking Him to bless this time. Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You that You are here with us. Lord, as we have already sung, You are the holy God of all the universe, Holy, holy, holy are you. We humble ourselves before you. We thank you that uh, you do not keep us at arm's length, but you invite us to come right into your presence because of the work of Christ, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that we are not here this morning because we've been good enough or somehow we've earned the right to stand before you, but simply, Lord, because we're your dearly loved children. So thank you that you are here with us now, and we ask your blessing upon this time. We thank you for the churches we're in partnership with, and we pray particularly for the churches in India and Brooklyn, uh, many of whom have already met in worship, some who are meeting now and some later today. Lord, may your spirit rest on those congregations, and may you continue building your kingdom in those places. Father, we thank you for the churches that surround us here in Charlotte, and this morning we lift up Mecklenburg Community to you, and it's Pastor Jim White. We thank you for them. We thank you for their passion in sharing the gospel and in seeing people brought to faith in you. 
We ask that you would encourage them in their work. We thank you, Lord, for their passion being an encouragement to us. And we thank you, Lord, that we can serve this community alongside them. So, Lord, as they meet this morning, may you bless them. But now, Lord, as we turn to your word, give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, come and do the work that only you can do and glorify the name of Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to read a quote from A.W. Tozer. He writes, To many Christians, Christ is little more than an idea, or at best, an ideal. He is not a fact. Millions of professed believers talk as if he were real and act as if he were not. Our actual position is always to be discovered by the way we act, not by the way we talk. I think that is such a true statement. And that quote sets up well the theme of what we're talking about today. We're in this series that we're calling Family Matters, a very short series in which we are considering the things we commit ourselves to as members of the body of Christ. And so far, we've already seen the first two vows wherein we said, we acknowledge we are sinners in the sight of God, that we justly deserve His displeasure, and we have no hope if it were not for His mercy. That's the first thing. The second thing we've said is that we believe, because of our state of being sinners, we believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only Savior of sinners, and we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered to us in the gospel. And so that leads us I I like how this begins because it begins with the basic. We're sinners in need of a Savior. There is one Savior, one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, once you've made that logical connection, the third vow flows very naturally out of that. And here it is in question form, which says, based on these first two things, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. And what I want to do this morning is we're going to look at, in this third vow, two things that we are called to do and two things that we're reminded of in this vow. And so, first, the primary theme of this vow is this. We are called to live what we profess. Going back to what Tozer wrote It gets at the very end of the vow, it says, where we will seek to live as becomes the followers of Christ. This is a very practical question. And what it's asking us, you could could frame this any number of ways. Essentially, it's saying, does being a sinner saved by grace make any real difference in your life? Because it should. You You could think of it this way. Does knowing that you're a sinner saved by grace, how does that impact the trajectory of your life, where your life is going? Because those realities should impact the trajectory. You could say it this way, would anyone be able to tell that you're a Christian just by looking at the evidence of your life itself, apart from your professed testimony, apart from your words, just looking at the fruit of your life? Would anyone be able to tell there's something that marks that person, that man or that woman, as different? You know, this is asking us, how will our lives actually look different because of being in relationship to Jesus Christ? And so what it's getting at, the way to summarize this, is it's 
challenging us with the fact that how we live actually matters. You see, living by faith is not merely professing faith in Jesus Christ. It's actually seeking to live under His kingship, under His lordship, surrendering our lives to Him. And there's many Bible verses that talk about this. You heard what Josh read from Colossians chapter 1. Those last two verses said this, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's the general testimony of Scripture. Romans, Paul says it this way, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And also in 2 Corinthians, And he died, speaking of Jesus, for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, what this is getting at is one of the worst things you and I can do is profess Jesus is my King, my Savior, my Lord, and have our lives testify in an opposite direction. Yesterday, sadly, I was at what's called a presbytery meeting, and almost, uh, I know that sounded funny how I just said that. <laughs> I didn't mean it. That. I love presbytery. I'll repent of saying that later. Um, I was at this meeting, you know, it's a local gathering of churches, and, and the sad, why it was sad was some of the business we had to deal with, which was dealing with an individual who, a pastor, professing one thing, and yet over the course of a long period of time, living in a completely different way, hiding that from people, but it comes out, and there is untold damage done when we profess one thing and we live contrary to it. Now, I, I want to be careful here because, well, I'll say that in a minute. Um, you know, all of us are sinners. So uh, this is not saying, you know, be good for goodness sake. This is not saying you are called to be perfect. This is not calling you, this vow is not even calling you to try to be perfect, because, you know, that's just going to exhaust you. You can't. It's not calling you to fake it either. What it's calling us to do is to live in a consistent way with what we profess. Um, why that was sad yesterday was because sometimes we're called when someone willfully and defiantly chooses to live contrary to the light of the cross. That's, that's when you have to deal with it. That's when it gets ugly. And so I'm not standing up here saying, oh, your pastors have it all together. No, we are some of the worst of sinners. I am of the worst of sinners. I thank the Lord for Brent being here because he is the worst of sinners. You know, <laughs> I used Kevin first hour, so, you know, I'll just, I'll just mix it up. But we are highly fallen individuals. So this is not saying that you will not sin. And it's, not, it's definitely not calling you to fake it somehow, because that's, that's another form of lying too. What it's calling you to do is to live in light of that you have someone who died for you, gave his life up so that you could be reconciled to God the Father, and now live in light of that. 
You know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, two of the most famous of the Reformers, they agreed, and they, and they wrote very similar statements. I'll summarize it this way. They said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. I hope that makes sense to you. We are saved by faith alone. Our works do not save us, but the saving faith is never alone. There will always be good works that flow out of saving faith. And that comes straight from the book of James, chapter 2. James writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And this is getting at, you are not saved by your faith. I mean, you're... Back up. (laughs) I'll be in real trouble with Presbyterian. You are not saved by your deeds. You are saved by faith. Okay. But that faith will always be accompanied by works. You know, that's, that's why James says a faith that has no reality of action to it, you have to question, is it really saving faith then? Or is it some false form of it? Because faith without works, James would say, and the Reformers would say, isn't real faith. True faith is always expressed in action. And so this vow, as I said, it's not calling you to be perfect. It's not calling you to promise to be perfect. It's not calling you to fake it. It's simply calling you to take seriously the call to live in light of the cross and to seek righteousness and holiness. And I think it would be fair to ask all of us, as I've been doing this week, do an inventory of your life this week and say, Lord, reveal to me where my life is out of accord with what I profess. It's good just to spend time and examine your life in that way. Not to be saved, but to be consistent with what we live. So that's the first thing that this vow tells us. But the second thing it tells us is also important, and it's easy to miss it because this vow also says that we are called to exert effort in seeking to live as becomes a follower of Christ. Because it says you will endeavor to do this. Now, endeavor simply means to try hard to do or achieve something. So the vow is saying that we are seeking that we will try hard to do to achieve living as becomes the followers of Jesus Christ. And and some of you are thinking, well, isn't that contrary to grace? Because we're saved by faith, saved by grace through faith. Isn't that contrary somehow? I mean, aren't you possibly saying something that contradicts the whole concept of God's grace and love to us? No. It's not contrary to grace at all, working hard. Here's a distinction for you. Grace is always opposed to earning something. It's never opposed to effort. You see, if you are seeking to live a holy life so that now you have God in your back pocket and you can say, okay, Lord, you need to do this for me, that's earning it. If you're seeking to be able to manipulate God, and and this happens in all kinds of subtle ways. Sometimes believers will say, I shouldn't have this sickness 
because I've lived my life following Jesus. And, and, and now that I have it, I'm questioning everything. Well, what that reveals is you've been trying to earn something, and actually you've been trying to manipulate the Lord because you're saying, I don't deserve this. You owe me, God, because of how I live for you. Grace is opposed to earning something. It's never opposed to working hard after something. And let me just give you a few examples. There's many in Scripture. Three verses. Paul, the author of Hebrews, and then Peter all say in different ways, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort. Work hard. Seek it. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. You see, exerting effort, I think you could summarize it this way. It means seeking the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and I'd encourage you, look at all the times that the Bible tells us to seek the Lord with all our heart. Many times, far more than I realized as I was studying this this week. Seek the Lord with all your heart so that He may be found, as the New Testament tells us. What this means is it'll involve fervent praying. It'll involve time in the Word and submitting ourselves to the Word. It'll involve tomorrow morning when you go to school or the office or the neighborhood or the gym, being mindful of the fact, my life is not my own. I live my life in light of a king who reigns over me and that I have surrendered my life to. And so this week, this morning, I'm going to seek to let my words reflect that. I'm going to seek to let my actions reflect that. You see, endeavoring after this means that we want to be holy. It even means that we want to want to be holy, if you follow that. We want to be righteous. Not to earn, but to be consistent. And the vow that we take here gives us a very important reminder in this. And what that is, is that we cannot do this on our own. At the very beginning it says, do you now resolve, promise, and promise in humble reliance? We don't have the power to live this way. That's, that's really bad news. You and I don't have that power. And all of that language there, resolving, promising, in humble reliance, those all are words that speak to the fact that we are unable to do this on our own. We have an inability in this area. You know that. If you have to make a promise to somebody, it's because you don't naturally do it. You know, uh, some of you have made New Year's resolutions. When you make a resolution, you are committing yourself to do something that doesn't come naturally to you. How many of you have already broken those New Year's resolutions of exercising more or eating differently or even not making any more New Year's resolutions? You know, it's we resolve to do something because we don't naturally do it. And so this vow is actually reminding us, this isn't going to come natural to you. It's actually going to take mindfulness and hard work to live in this way. Philippians 2 says it this way, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, 
Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Paul says, first, work out your salvation. It doesn't mean you can save yourself. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you actually have a part. You have a role in this. You are not 100% completely passive. But he goes on and points out, it's God who works in you, both giving you the will to want it and to act. So you can't do this on your own. You have a part but you are totally incapable in and of yourself, so it requires the Lord's work. And sometimes people really freak out over when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is not saying this, because I've heard this before, you never know if you've done enough good, so you should have a little bit of anxiety and worry on whether you've met the standard or not. That is not the gospel. That's works-oriented salvation. And that is not what Paul's advocating here. You see, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, meaning do your part with fear and trembling, what Paul is saying is this. Do your part with a humble attitude of dependence on God Himself. We have a small role to play, but we certainly don't control it. And, and Maybe this image will be helpful for you. If you like water sports, okay, we are not a rowboat, nor are we a motorboat in this regard. And here's what I mean. If you are going to cross a large body of water, you can take the rowboat approach, which says, I do it all. It's my work, my effort, I'll get from point A to point B. The Bible does not say that's how we live our lives. And what's funny to me, that's a, from a website that sells rowboats, they look so happy. I guarantee you, 30 seconds after this picture taken, those people rowing are not smiling like that because it's hard work. To me, it's no fun at all. But also, the Christian life is not like a motorboat where you push a button, you crank an engine, and then you sail across the lake, and you are completely in control. Yeah, you're not supplying the power, but you are completely in control of basically everything about that boat. The Christian life is neither of those things. It's a little bit more like sailing. Because in sailing, you have a role to play. You actually have things to do. And so, this is not, I'm not talking about salvation in any way here. I'm talking about living today, living tomorrow, seeking holiness. We have a role In sailing, what do you do? You hoist the sails, if nothing else. But you know what? If the wind doesn't blow, you're not going anywhere. You see, you can't generate the power. There are things that we can control in life. You can pick up your phone and make a call. You can microwave a dinner. You can get in your car and drive around. But there are certain things you have no control over whatsoever. You can't make it rain. We can't be in a sailboat and say, Lord, I need about right now a north-by-northwesterly wind. Go. It doesn't work that way. We have no control over that. So what do you do in sailing? You do your part, and you harness the power of the wind. Now, the reason I use this illustration is because it's kind of 
what Jesus almost says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says to him, talking about being born again, he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And what's fascinating to me, that word wind and that word spirit, at the end, those are the exact same word in Greek. That's why Holy Spirit is often compared to a mighty wind. And Jesus is intentionally using this double entendre here that the Spirit blows wherever it pleases. You see, living the Christian life in holiness means that what we do, we don't have the power to do it ourselves. We rely on the power of Holy Spirit. But you can place yourself in position to better harness that power. For instance, if you never open the Word and never spend time in prayer, you're not doing your part to harness power of Holy Spirit in your life. If you never take time to reflect over your life and to say, Lord, where are you pinging me about a way that I'm running from you and I'm seeking my own glory or my own agenda or my own way, you're not harnessing power of Holy Spirit. You see, we have a role to play. It's kind of like when you go to sleep at night. You know, I found this out, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. If I sit there with my iPad and I read, you know, even, even with now Apple's little thing about changing the screen orange instead of blue, if I read for a couple of hours, I have a really hard time going to bed. So literally, I've stopped doing that because I'll stay awake half the night. I can't make myself sleep, but I sure can prevent myself from going to sleep. But if I put myself in a position to let sleep come, being in a dark room, being quiet, not having blue light in my eyes for hours before trying to sleep, you can put yourself in a position to actually let sleep come to you. You see, living the life of the Christian is admitting, I can't do this. All of my power comes from Holy Spirit. But you can harness and do what you're called to do. So how are you harnessing Holy Spirit's power in your life? You know, know, there's a lot of different Christian disciplines out there. And sometimes I've found that the Lord speaks to me differently at different seasons of my life, more through one than through another. And here's what I mean. Sometimes the Lord just really speaks to me through the Word. Sometimes He speaks more to me in my prayer life. And so what I seek to do is when I see how the Lord is really working in my life at a particular season through one of these disciplines, I'll spend more time in that. That's me trying to hoist a sail and say, Lord, you lead me where you want me to go. It's putting myself in a position to, Lord, I need you. What are you doing to harness the power that's given to you? See, we can't do it on our own. But what this tells us is you have unbelievable power available to you if you'll tap into that. And the other thing it tells us is that while you can't do it on your own and you have power, the final reminder is you're going to mess up. And that's why the vow actually tells us to rely on the grace of Holy Spirit. Because you know what? 
a lot of us, myself included, will probably walk out of here today, and it won't be very long before we blow it in some way. We'll say something stupid, we'll do something stupid that's contrary to what we want to live in righteousness and holiness. Tomorrow morning, you may do that. Grace is available to you. You see, you will mess it up, but you rely on the grace provided by God Himself. And that's actually part of what it means to live as becomes a follower of Jesus. Because if you think about it, living in light of the cross means I can admit to how fallen I am. I'm a radically messed up individual who's addicted to sin in a number of different ways. And God is slowly changing that in my life. I want righteousness, and I want to want righteousness, but I still sin regularly, and I am utterly dependent on Him to grow me up in my faith. And living as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ means you can be honest with the ways that you're messed up too. You see, being a hypocrite isn't saying you're sinful. Being a hypocrite is saying, I've got it all together. Being a genuine Christian means I am saved by God's grace. I don't deserve it. I can't believe He saved me, but He did. And I am so incredibly thankful to Him. And now I'm seeking to surrender my life completely to Him. I keep trying to grab it back in different ways, but I'm seeking. When you mess up, as you surely will, as I surely will, run to the cross and receive grace. Because grace will tell you, push forward keep going. Don't give up. You're not stuck in the water by yourself. Craig Barnes is a guy that he's a pastor. He's a theologian. I had the pastors here read one of his books two years ago called The Pastor is Minor Poet. He tells about when he was a boy, a young boy, his mother and father brought a younger, I mean, a slightly older boy named Roger into the home. Roger's parents had died of a heroin overdose, both of them. They were heroin addicts, and eventually it took their lives. And Roger literally had no other family. So they worked with the state, and they adopted Roger and brought Roger into their home. And Craig Barnes says that it was very hard for Roger to adjust to living in this new family. Because, for one, the environment was radically different, starting with the fact that I don't have two adult figures that are strung out on heroin. That was radically different. And Craig said, many times a day I would hear my parents say something along these lines, no, no, Roger, that's not how we behave in this family. No, Roger, you don't have to scream or fight or hurt someone else to get what you want. No, Roger, we expect you to show respect to everyone else in this family. And Craig, reflecting on this, said, in time, Roger began to change. And he says, did Roger have to make all those changes in order to be part of our family? Not at all. He was made part of the family by the grace of my parents. But now that he was part of the family, he actually had to do a lot of hard work 
because he was part of the family. Craig said it was actually very hard for him to change, and he worked hard at it. But here was his motivation. He was motivated by the love he had received and the gratitude he wanted to show. And Craig's point is this. Do we have a lot of hard work to do now that Holy Spirit has adopted us into God's family? Absolutely, we have a lot of hard work to do. But not in order to become a son or daughter of God. You see, I would summarize it this way. We seek to live as becomes the followers of Christ because we are sons and daughters, not in order to become sons and daughters. You see, you and I, my friends, we are radically messed up people. We are sinners addicted to sin and are hopeless except for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he laid down his life so that now, who are you? Who are you today in Jesus? You are holy. You are looked at as perfect. You are looked at as fully loved and fully accepted by God, your heavenly Father. And there is nothing on earth or in heaven that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. You are more loved than you can possibly ever imagine. We don't seek to live in holiness to earn it. You already have the status. You have the identity. We seek to live in holiness out of gratitude for the love that we've been shown and to be consistent in our walk so that a watching world can say, what is different about you? Why do, why do you seem different from other people that I interact with? That's why we do it. So you see, in this vow, we are promising things like this. We're going to strive to have our lives reflect more and more what we really believe. We're going to strive that people will start seeing actually more of Jesus in my life and less of me in my life. We're going to promise to do our part, which is small, and to radically depend on His power and His grace because we can't do anything without it. We're going to seek to be people who reflect the beauty, the glory, the holiness, and the grace of the God who saved us. That's what this vow is all about. So I invite you right now, those of you who are members, and even if you're not, maybe you want to say this just as a profession of faith in Jesus Christ yourself. We're going to say this vow together as the church. You can stay seated and just repeat with me. We are the church. Father God, we thank you. We cannot do this on our own. And Jesus, we thank you that you have done everything needed for our salvation, and you grant us the indwelling of Holy Spirit to empower us. Lord, may we be a people who know not just a theology of the mind, but a theology that is played out in experiencing the vibrant 
power of the living God that is transforming our lives. That day in and day out is doing a sanctifying and holy work in us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to hate sin and to love righteousness, and that when we choose to run to sin, that, Lord, we would just as quickly then turn and run to you in repentance. We thank you so much, Lord, for our glorious salvation, and we pray that you would just help us more and more reflect who you, our King, truly are in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.